First Timothy chapter 1, and let's begin reading from verse 1. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Saviour, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father, and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than God the edifying which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, which some, having swerved to turn aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this night, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless now as we uh, come around your word, that you would uh, teach us, Lord, and instruct us through it, and give us understanding of the text before us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, empower me now through the Spirit, that, Lord, you would give me the words and the, the wisdom uh, to say on that which you'd have me to say this evening. And I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified now as we uh, consider your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember, uh, back before I went away on holidays, we started a new series in the evenings on First Timothy. Well, a series really on the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and uh, Titus and we <clears throat> sort of did a bit of an introduction and we talked about how these epistles are unique uh, from Paul's other letters because they're written unto individuals rather than unto churches. They're written to two men who are in the ministry overseeing the work of God. Uh, Timothy of course is ministering at Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. And both men are in difficult trying situations. These are not easy places of ministry. And so Paul writes these letters to give them instruction and indeed to encourage them in the work, in the ministry, to encourage them to remain faithful. And as we said last time, even though these letters are addressed to two men in full-time ministry, that doesn't mean that the, the truths and the challenges and the encouragement they're in don't apply to all of us. They do. They apply to all of us as believers. And with that in mind, we began our series by looking at Paul's opening remarks in chapter 1 here, verse 1 and 2. Let's just read it to refresh our minds. This is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, under Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we considered Paul's opening remarks last time, and we, we saw that in verse 1, Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he <clears throat> states for us his position and also the authority by which he speaks, by which he writes this letter unto Timothy and indeed unto the believers. And then in verse 2, he addresses Timothy with some words of encouragement. In the form of a prayer, he prays for grace mercy and peace. Praise that Timothy would experience these three things more fully every day so that he might faithfully press on in the ministry. 
And now following this introduction, these introductory words of encouragement, Paul now begins the main body of the letter here in verse 3. And in verse 3 we learn that there is an important reason why Timothy was left there at Ephesus. Verse 3 it says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest teach, sorry, that mightest charge some, that they teach no other doctrine. <clears throat> Verse 3 begins there with the words, it says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia. Paul here reminds Timothy that he besought him to remain at Ephesus. Now that word besought is interesting uh, because it implies that there was a reluctance on the part of Timothy to stay at Ephesus. It's the Greek word parakaleo, and it means to beg, to entreat, to beseech. And it's, it's a strong word in the Greek. Okay? And so it implies to us, it suggests to us, that Timothy had other plans, that Timothy didn't really want to stay in Ephesus. He wanted to do something else. And so Paul had to plead with Timothy, he had to beg with Timothy to stay at Ephesus. Now, that's not to suggest that, you know, Timothy had no desire to do the work of the Lord. That's not what we're suggesting at all. More likely, Timothy wanted to remain with, with Paul. That's, that's really what's happening here. He wanted to stay with Paul. He wanted to continue traveling and ministering alongside his mentor and his friend. But as much as Timothy wanted to remain with Paul, you know, Paul knew that there was an important job that needed to be done at Ephesus. And so Paul... Uh, beseeches him, begs him to stay. You see, Paul knew that Timothy was the right man to carry out this task. You know, his piety and his soundness in the faith, his soundness in, in doctrine, made Timothy the perfect man for this role, this difficult task. And so Paul beseeched him, uh, besought him to stay there at Ephesus. And in spite of his reluctance, Timothy agreed he heeded the, uh, Paul's instructions, you know, as the apostle of God. He heeds those instructions. And he remains at Ephesus to carry out this commission that's given to him by the apostle Paul. And so let's begin, first of all, here this evening by considering the commission given to young Timothy, the commission given unto him. Let's read verse 3 again. <clears throat> it says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus... When I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. He would see clearly that Timothy was uh, given a commission by the Apostle Paul. And we're told what that commission is, and, and we see immediately why it is that Paul is so insistent that Timothy remain and continue that work, that he doesn't now abandon it, that he continues on and finishes this important task. You see, evidently there were some at Ephesus who had begun to teach false doctrine in the church. At the end of verse 3, it says that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He says, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And so Paul here doesn't identify these individuals. He doesn't name them here in verse 3. He merely refers to them as some within the church. 
However, if we read on in the chapter, later on in the chapter, we're given the name of two men who most likely are part of this sum that he mentions here in verse 3. If you drop down to verse 19 with me, chapter 1, verse 19, it says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hermonius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they learn not to blaspheme. So here in verse 20, we have these two men mentioned, Harmonius and Alexander, and it's suggested by many that they may have been the ringleaders, that they were the main problem uh, causes there at Ephesus. And so it's possible that these two are included in that sum, along with some others as well. But in any case, there are false teachers who have entered into the church there at Ephesus. They're causing problems. They're a danger to the flock. And it's for this reason that Timothy was left there by Paul. It's for this reason he was besought to stay, to abide. And Paul commissioned Timothy to take a stand against these false teachers. He commissioned them, him to charge them to stop. Look there again in verse 3 at the end there. It says that thou mightest charge some. And they teach no other doctrine. The word translated charge here is a military term. And it speaks of passing on an order from a commanding officer. So you've received the order and you pass on that order. You command others to follow that order. And so the word implies that Paul here expected Timothy to take a hard line with these false teachers. He was to take a hard line with them. He was to command them to stop. Now, he wasn't simply to present them with the option of stopping. He wasn't simply to politely ask them to stop. He was to command them to stop. That's the implication of this word charge here. You see, Timothy, as the, the pastor of the church, you know, as the, the shepherd of the flock, Timothy needed to command them to stop. Why? For the protection of the flock of God. And so he needed to take a stand against these, these men, these false teachers. And in particular... There are two things mentioned here that Timothy was to charge them to stop doing. First is there at the end of verse 3, it says, that Thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And so the first thing he was to charge them or command them to stop doing is teaching other doctrine. Now the Greek verb there translated other doctrine means of a different kind. It's a totally different kind. It's not just that they were teaching in a different way the same doctrine. No, they were teaching a totally different doctrine. Now, there's another Greek word which means another of the same kind. And Paul uses both of those words together in Galatians chapter 1, where he speaks about this same idea. You just turn over there, Galatians chapter 1. <clears throat> Galatians 1 verse 6, <clears throat> it says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And so here Paul's speaking about this idea of false doctrine in particular. Here he says another gospel at the end of verse 6. He says, you're removed unto another gospel of a totally different kind, another gospel. And then in verse 7 he says, which is not another of the same kind. He uses those two words together. 
You see, false doctrine often poses as the truth, doesn't it? It poses as the truth, and it often has elements of the truth mixed in. It's a perversion of the truth, and it is indeed of another kind. It's totally different. It's false. You know, false doctrine will not result in the salvation of souls. It will not result in spiritual growth because it is a different gospel. It is a different doctrine. And that's the problem at Ephesus. You know, certain men were mingling strange elements with the truth. Mingling those strange elements in, mixing it in. And it was dangerous. And so Timothy was to charge them to stop, to cease their teaching. You know, Timothy, as the pastor of the church, needed to guard and protect the truth of God's word. And the second thing Timothy was to charge these men to stop doing is that they would not give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Look there in verse 4. It goes on, it says, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith so do. So he's secondly here told to <clears throat> command them or charge them to not give heed to fables and endless genealogies. In other words, these men were not only to cease their false teaching, but these men also needed to correct their thinking as well. You see, they were occupying their minds with a dangerous fad, which really was the reason their doctrine ended up being perverted. Because they were occupying their minds with these things. They were giving heed, occupying their minds with fables or myths, if you like, and endless genealogies. Now, according to Hendrickson, these two words form one idea. <clears throat> he writes this, The expression myths and genealogies is one. It must not be divided as if Paul were thinking on the one hand of myths, and on the other hand, of genealogies. And so these two go together. They express one thought. You see, the sense is that these men were preoccupied with myths about characters from the Old Testament genealogies. Okay? They're preoccupied with these myths, these made-up stories about men from the Old Testament. Embellishments, if you like, from those uh, genealogies that we read in the Old Testament there. Henriksen again writes this, he says, It was a known fact that from early times the rabbis would spin their yarns, and endless yarns they were, on the basis of what they considered some hint supplied by the Old Testament. They would take a name from a list of pedigrees and expand it into a nice story. And so these are the, the myths based on these genealogies that he's talking about here. You see, these fables, these myths were even written down in various books and they were studied in the synagogues by the Jews. The rabbis taught them and debated them and, you know, embellished them even further. You know, one of these books was called the Book of Jubilees and it basically starts in Genesis and it goes right through and it embellishes everything that's in the Word of God, adds more to it, adds myths and stories and fables. And so they would take this almost as being alongside the Word of God. It's a bit like what we talked about a few weeks ago too with the blind leading the blind. And they would take the tradition of elders, those books as well, and hold them up as being on the same level as the Word of God. And so 
this is that, that idea here, these myths and endless genealogies. It's these myths on Old Testament characters, embellishments of these stories. And Paul here declares that such myths are worthless. He says there in verse 4, he says, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. He says they minister questions. You see, rather than adding to someone's faith, rather than building them up, strengthening them, these myths, all they do is minister more questions. All, all these myths did was lead to debates among the people, you know, as to what this meant and what this meant, and arguing amongst themselves. You see, the point is that instead of spending their time studying the Word of God, and that's where their attention should have been, they spent their time arguing about these speculations. And it consumed them, and it added nothing to their faith. And in fact, it led them into false doctrine, didn't it? It perverted their doctrine. You know, this danger still exists today, doesn't it? For us as believers. You know, believers love to speculate and to argue about things that are not actually revealed to us in the Word of God. You know, perhaps one of the one of those most dangerous speculations is concerning the end times, isn't it? You know, it's wonderful to study what God's Word says about the end times, to study the book of Daniel, to study those other Old Testament prophecies. It's wonderful to study Revelation like we are on Wednesday nights and to study those end times and to see what God has revealed about those things. But you know, when we start to be distracted by the many speculations of men then we're wasting our time, aren't we? You know, speculations about, you know, exactly how it's all going to happen and, and what timing, you know? People love to speculate it's going to happen now, this time. And that this is the mark of the beast and this is the ten-nation confederacy and on and on we go. We're speculating, aren't we? We're speculating about things that aren't actually confirmed in the Word of God. You know, these things, these speculations, and we can speculate other things too, but these speculations, all they do is minister questions. They don't build us up. They don't strengthen us in the faith. See, far better we focus our attention upon the infallible, inerrant, revealed Word of God. You know, God's given us what He wants us to know. Let's focus our attention there instead of upon speculation. You see, God's Word alone will strengthen us. God's Word alone can lead us into right doctrine. And that brings us now, secondly, to consider the purpose of this commission. We talked about his commission that he was given. He was to charge these men to stop teaching their false doctrine and to stop giving heed to these endless myths and endless genealogies. And what was the purpose of all that? What was the purpose of this commission given to young Timothy? Well, let's look in verse 5. <clears throat> it says there in verse 5, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned. In verse 5, Paul makes it clear that the purpose, the desired result of Timothy carrying out this commission, the desired result was love. That's what he says here. You see, we read there in verse 5, it says, Now the end, or the purpose of the commandment, is charity. It's love. That was the desired result, that the believers would be built up in love toward God and indeed toward one another. 
You know, in Matthew 22, Christ taught that love is the fulfillment of the whole law. Let's just turn over there, Matthew 22. Matthew 22 and verse 37. So Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, Christ taught that love is the fulfillment of the whole law, love towards God and love towards our neighbor, our fellow man. Why? Well, because when we love God as we ought then we naturally will obey God. We'll obey His commandments and we'll reverence Him like we ought. And when we love one another, we will naturally treat our fellow man in the right way. We will not commit murder. We will not steal. We will not commit adultery. We will not covet. When we love our fellow man, we will treat them according to the law. And so love really is what God desires, isn't it? That's what God desires to be produced in every single one of us as believers. Love towards God, love towards our fellow man. This idea of charity. You see, these false teachers, they have lost sight of this by their false doctrine and their endless speculation. And so Timothy, he was commissioned to bring them back to the truth. That's really what he's doing here, isn't it? He's not just charging them to stop doing this. He's pointing them back to the truth and saying, this is what you should be focused upon. This is the truth. This is sound doctrine. It was to turn the people's attention to the truth of God's word. And by doing so, the end of that, the end result would be charity. Which would spring from three things which would be produced in the life of the believer. He tells us those three things there at the end of verse, uh, verse 5. It says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. He says that this charity will spring from three things that will result in the life of the believer. It springs, first of all, he says, from a pure heart. Now, the heart of man is, of course, it speaks about our very being, doesn't it? Okay, it speaks about the very being of man, our makeup. And by nature, man's heart is evil. <clears throat> We're sinners by nature. And so for the heart to be pure, the, fa- the heart must first of all be cleansed must be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, by coming to Christ in faith. And of course, only the truth of the gospel can produce that cleansing. Only as the word of God is preached, sound doctrine is preached, and we come to the Lord by faith, can that cleansing take place within. And you know, without that cleansing, true love is impossible. Until we're saved, we've had that cleansing, a pure heart, true love is impossible. First Peter <clears throat> chapter 1 <clears throat> and verse 22 we see this that only after we're saved can we hope to love one another with a pure heart 1st Peter 1 verse <clears throat> excuse me verse 22 it says seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently it's only after we obey the truth through the spirits 
and we come to the Lord, only then can we love one another with a pure heart fervently. Only then can we hope to have that pure heart. And so only true doctrine, sound doctrine, preaching the, the true gospel, can produce that change in the heart of man. Paul then secondly declares that this love springs from a good conscience. Okay, he goes on, he says, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience. Now, a good conscience, of course, is the result of being new creatures in Christ Jesus. It's the result of the change that's taken place within. We now have a good conscience. You know, unsaved man's conscience is evil. It's defiled. It's not working properly. But a believer's conscience is now functioning as God intended. You know, the believer's conscience is cleared of past guilt of sin. Why? Because of Christ and what he did for us there on the cross. The forgiveness that we have in him. And now the believer's conscience leads us to daily seek to live in obedience to the Lord and his word. That's our desire now. And so God's word now, as we hear it, God's word cleanses the believer. It convicts us of sin. It leads us to seek only those thoughts, those words, those deeds, which are in harmony with the end goal of God's law, love. It leads us to wanting to treat our fellow man the right way. We want to have a good conscience before God. We want to have our hearts right before God. And then thirdly, Paul declares that this love springs from faith unfeigned. It says at the end of the verse, they're out of a pure heart, of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned. Now the word unfeigned there means without hypocrisy. And so this is a real and genuine faith. It's not a dead faith. It's a real and living faith that's demonstrated in the way we live, in the life of the believer. It's a faith that's founded upon God's word, the truth of God's word. And it's a faith that's then built up and grown and nourished by the truth of God's word. You see, this faith will then naturally evidence itself in our love for God and our love towards our fellow man. You see, these three are the result of sound doctrine. That's the only way they can be produced in the life of the believer. As we spend time in the Word of God under the, the sound preaching of God's Word. They're the result of sound doctrine and together these three produce charity or love in the life of the believer. One commentator summed it up well. He said, only sound doctrine, that is a full gospel message declaring the whole counsel of God will produce this kind of life in men and make possible the greatest goal, which of course is love. You see, only sound doctrine can produce this in the life of men. You know, sadly, the false teachers, they had lost sight of this chief aim. They had lost sight of it. They'd swerved from the truth. He says that there in verse 6. Paul goes on, he says, From which... Some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor whereof they affirm. He says there in verse 6, From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. He says they've swerved. Now that word there means to miss the mark, to deviate from. These men had missed the mark of truth. Henriksen writes these, he says, uh, <clears throat> these men are said to have wandered away or deviated from their proper objectives. 
the pure heart, the good conscience, and faith without hypocrisy. Naturally, they also missed the true destination, the final goal, namely love. They missed these objectives. Why? Because they weren't preaching sound doctrine. And they missed the end goal, love. They'd missed the mark of truth. Now they're like marksmen aiming at the, the target and they, they don't missed it completely. They're over here. Or if you like, they're like a traveler you know, on the road to a destination and they never arrive because they took a wrong turn and they've kept going down that wrong path. These men had deviated from doctrinal truth unto another doctrine they had completely missed the mark. And at the end of verse 6, we're told where their deviation had taken them. He says they turned aside unto vain jangling. Instead of preaching doctrinal truth, doctrinal truth which would result in love out of a pure heart, of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned, instead they found themselves teaching vain jangling. One commentator wrote this, vain jangling is that which is devoid of force, truth, success, result. It's that which is useless and to no purpose. That's the idea here, vain jangling. Their doctrine had no force, no truth, no success, no result. It was useless. See, this perfectly describes and sums up their teaching. Their teaching was completely useless spiritually. It added nothing to them spiritually or to anyone else who heard it. They spent their time arguing about their myths on these endless genealogies. And it corrupted their doctrine to where it led them and their followers down a spiritual dead end. One commentator said this, he said, The path which these people have taken is not even a detour. It's more like a dead end street beyond which lies a swamp. And in their case, the swamp of futile talk, useless reasoning, argumentation that gets nowhere. Dry as dust, disputation and wrangling about fanciful tales. You see, they'd ended up not on the detour, they'd ended up on the wrong road altogether. A one-way street, and they'd ended up in a swamp, a quagmire they couldn't get themselves out of. Arguing and wrangling about all these fanciful tales which added nothing to their faith. And in verse 7, Paul tells us why this happened. He tells us why these men missed the mark and turned aside to this vain jangling. He says in verse 7, Desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. This was the problem. <clears throat> These men desired to be teachers of the law. Now, in and of itself, that's not a bad thing, is it? That's not a bad thing to desire, to be a, someone who knows and understands the law, someone who knows and understands the Old Testament, God's Word, and to then teach it unto others. That's not a bad desire. The problem for these men was that they desired to be teachers when they themselves had not been taught. You look there again in verse 7, it says, Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor whereof they affirm. It sums it up perfectly. They desired to be teachers, but they themselves had no understanding. They had no understanding of the law. They had no understanding of what they were seeking to teach. They were, had no understanding of the themes that they were discussing. And so even though they spoke with great confidence when they taught, it was useless because they themselves had no understanding. 
It was this lack of spiritual understanding that led them into this vain jangling. You know, teaching and arguing about things that had no spiritual value and resulted in their false doctrine. You know, here we see clearly that, you know, if we're going to be teachers, we first have to humble ourselves and be willing to learn, don't we? Be willing to be taught. You know, later on in chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul discusses the qualifications of a pastor. In verse 6 there of chapter 3, he says about the pastor, he says, Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. You know, Paul there, he says that a pastor must not be a novice. In other words, he needs to be trained himself first of all, and he needs to be taught. As you say there at the end of the verse, he says, lest he be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He lifted up with pride. Now that describes these men. They desired to be teachers and they were lifted up with pride, yet they hadn't been taught. These men were not willing to be taught. They simply desired the accolade, the, you know, the, the accolade that came, the pride of being a teacher. And their lack of understanding led them into this position of grave error. It made them a danger not only to themselves, but also to the church. And so it was for this reason, for this purpose, that Timothy was commissioned to charge them, command them to stop. To stop teaching their doctrine and arguing about these myths. And he's to charge them instead to return to the truth. Return to that which Paul had laid, the foundation he had laid when he was first there. You see, only the truth would produce charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned. You know, we likewise must be vigilant as believers today to hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to sound doctrine upon God's word. You know, we must ever be careful that we don't swerve, that we don't miss the mark and become sidetracked by vain jangling you see, beloved, only the truth of God's word, only sound doctrine will enable us to grow and producing us this charity, this love out of a pure heart, a good conscience and unfeigned faith. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us as believers to ever be vigilant, Lord, to ever test everything according to your word. Lord, help us to remain faithful to the truth and, Lord, not get distracted by these myths and endless genealogies and, Lord, not be turned aside unto vain jangling. Lord, just strengthen us in our faith. Help us to remain firm for you. And, Lord, may you build us up indeed in love towards you and indeed towards one another. Lord, may you bless your word and, and speak to our hearts this evening. We pray in Jesus' name.